degree, anxious to make animal programmes myself, it seemed that each of these two formats had its own particular quality and limitation. I had already produced, besides ballets, party political broadcasts, short stories and archaeological quizzes, a series of three programmes narrated by one of the great scientific figures of the time, Sir Julian Huxley, in which he demonstrated the meaning and function of animal patterns and shapes. To illustrate his words, I had borrowed some of the animals from Mr. Cansdale's London Zoo, and in doing so I had met the zoo's curator of reptiles, Jack Lester. Although from his earliest years he had had a passion for animals, Jack had no formal zoological training, and his first job was in a bank. However, he swiftly moved to the bank's overseas branch, and so managed to get to West Africa. There he had indulged his enthusiasm for collecting and keeping reptiles, and he soon became widely acknowledged as an expert. After the Huxley series was over, we met to discuss what to do next. I thought I had an idea which might get him back to his beloved West Africa, and I with him. My plan was simple. The BBC and the London Zoo should mount a joint animal-collecting expedition. I would direct film sequences showing Jack searching for and finally capturing a creature of particular interest. The sequence would end with a close-up of the animal in his hands. The picture would then dissolve into a similar shot of the same creature, but live in the studio, in the Cansdale manner. Jack would then demonstrate its particular characteristics, and, if necessary, get bitten and soaked. Then viewers would be returned by way of film to Africa and another search and capture. The scheme seemed an excellent one. The only problem was that the zoo at the time had no intention of sending out a collecting expedition, nor had the BBC any ambition to embark on the highly specialised and presumably wildly expensive business of making natural history films. Jack and I decided that we might overcome both these obstacles with a single, properly stage-managed lunch, at which executives from both the zoo and the BBC would meet under the impression that the other already had such a plan in his mind. The lunch duly took place in the zoo restaurant. Jack and I were there to prompt and steer our seniors. Both executives left after coffee, each convinced that he had a lot to gain from joining in the other's plans, and to our incredulous delight the very next day, we were both separately told to go ahead. We agreed on the area to visit without any trouble. Jack's bank had been in Sierra Leone. He knew the country and he knew the fauna. He had a lot of friends there who could give us help. I was convinced, however, that if the television programmes were to be a success, the expedition would have to have a particular objective. A rare creature that preferably had never been seen alive in captivity. An animal so romantic, rare and exciting that the quest for it would sustain the viewer through at least half a dozen half-hour programmes. It was a difficult bill to fill. The only creature Jack could think of in Sierra Leone that could even remotely qualify was a bird called Picathartes gymnocephalus. It seemed to me that rousing the British public into a frenzy of excitement over the search for a creature with a name such as that would not be easy. Had it no other? Bald-headed rock-crow, Jack said. That seemed hardly any better. However, there was no other contender, so Picathartes became our target. One further crucial issue had to be settled. We needed a cameraman. 
The BBC at the time worked exclusively on 35mm film, the gauge used for cinema films, in which industry all of its film cameramen had learned their skills. 16mm film was used only by amateurs and was referred to derisively by professionals as bootlace. On the other hand, the 35mm stock and camera were so heavy and bulky that even though I had never done such work, I doubted very much if we would be able to take them into the sort of situations I had in my mind's eye. Since no BBC staff cameraman at the time had any experience or inclination to work with bootlace, I had to look elsewhere. Soon I heard of Charles Lagos, a man of my own age who had just returned from an expedition to the Himalayas looking for the abominable snowman. There he had worked as assistant to Tom Stobart, the brilliant filmmaker who had been a member of the first successful expedition to Everest and had made a magnificent film of the climb. From him, Charles had learned a great deal about expedition filming and the use of 16mm film. Jack and I asked Charles to join us. He needed no more than a pint of beer to make up his mind to do so. Jack decided he would need help in looking after the animals as they were caught, and he recruited a sagacious and wily headkeeper from the zoo's birdhouse, Alf Woods. So, in September 1954, the four of us set off for Sierra Leone. We spent three months there. We filmed pythons and chimpanzees, mantises and weaver birds. Jack assembled a collection of some fifty snakes and hundreds of birds, as well as mongooses, otters, giant rats and bush babies. We even found, filmed and captured Picathartes gymnocephalus. It turned out to be a bizarre, crow-sized bird with a bald yellow head that built dramatic mud nests on the sides of huge rock boulders buried in the jungle. We returned to London, full of excitement, with the animal collection and several thousand feet of 16mm film. The film was edited into just the kind of sequences we had planned, and in December 1954, Jack presented the first programme from the studio under the name Zoo Quest. But there was a sadness. Jack had fallen ill soon after we had got back, and the day after the first programme he had to go into hospital. Since the programmes were live and no one else was available, the next week I had to take his place in the studio, and I did so for the remaining programmes in the series. ZooQuest was greeted with enthusiasm by viewers. The Africa we had shown was very different from the one presented by the Dennises. Instead of the open plains swarming with big game, our films showed the dense rainforest, and instead of lions and elephants, we concentrated on scorpions, potter wasps, termites, and columns of army ants on the march. They were much smaller than the East African big game, but Charles had shown with his skilful and pioneering close-up photography that they could be equally dramatic. A month or so after the series was over, Jack had recovered sufficiently to be discharged from hospital, and the three of us decided that we should suggest another trip, while our respective bosses still remembered that the first had been a success. We did, and in March 1955, eight weeks after the last West African programme had been transmitted, we set off again for South America. So the ZooQuest series became established, and they continued as more or less annual events for the next decade. After the South American trip, however, Jack's illness recurred, and although he shared in the planning of our third trip to Indonesia, 
He was plainly not fit enough to take part in it himself. He urged us to go without him, and we did. He died, while we were away, at the tragically early age of forty-seven. This is the story of that third trip to Indonesia. We called it ZooQuest for a Dragon, for our target was the largest lizard in the world, the Komodo Dragon. The world has changed a great deal since it was written. For one thing, zoos have changed. Today they breed their animals and send the offspring to one another, and quite right too. We now recognise that the natural world can no longer withstand wholesale plundering. But then, expeditions like the one described in this book were a recognised and acceptable way for zoos to acquire their exhibits. Indonesia has also changed. In the 1950s, it had only just achieved its independence after a long and bloody fight against colonial rule, and was still constructing the bureaucratic apparatus necessary for a modern state. And the dragon has changed, at least in the mind of the public. Now tourist ships regularly take hundreds of visitors to see it on its island home, and millions all over the world have seen it many times on television. But then it was something of a mystery animal, which had never been filmed, and which was largely unknown even to Indonesians who lived beyond the shores of Komodo. And I dare say the author has changed somewhat as well. This is a young man's book, but I still remember the whole trip very well indeed. The organisation of an enterprise, eventually to be dignified by the title of expedition, should, by rights, imply many months of detailed planning. There should be schedules and permits. This visa.